0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all sixty-six books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in context.
1: Let's open First Thessalonians in your Bible if you have one. I call this book "Common Sense Sanctification." Common Sense Sanctification. Sanctification is one of those Bible religious words that we use it, and it tends to be meaningless. A simple definition for me is becoming more like the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, less like my sinful self and more like my Savior. It's a transformation process. We often differentiate between salvation, the time you walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, whatever it was, when you trusted Christ, when you put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He lived, He died, He was buried. He came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised the free gift of eternal life, a relationship with him, forgiveness of sin, and now, hopefully, we grow. That's the sanctification process. Too often, churches and leaders can commingle those two events. I think they're different in scripture. There's a point in time, we can't always put the date in time, but there's a point in time when you trust it, when you believe, when you put your faith in. But there's a process of faithful living That goes up and down. Sometimes we're more faithful, sometimes we're less faithful. Sometimes we're off in the weeds in sin, sometimes we're really devout in our faith. That's sanctification. So when I look at this book and step back, there's so many important themes and takeaways. Uh, That one rang solid with me. This is common sense sanctification. A little bit of the backstory on the big book series. We're taking one book of the Bible each Sunday and going through it. Uh, I've never done it before, and this will probably be the last time I'll ever do it. Uh, But we're getting close to the end. Actually, I've learned a tremendous amount. I hope it's been beneficial to you. But the backdrop of the Thessalonian letters is chapter 17 of Acts. And there is an interesting story there where the Jewish leaders are so livid with Paul that they... They chase them all the way to Berea. That's about 90 miles in the ancient world. Think about being so ticked off at somebody, you're going to persecute them for what they believe. And that's the backdrop of the church in Thessalonica. You can read about that if you want in Acts chapter 17. Let's begin with our friends Boa and Wilkinson and their talk through the Bible paragraph. A little different than what you're going to read. I've edited it a bit. The church at Thessalonica was in many ways a model church. Paul had many things to commend the believers for their exemplary faith, their diligent service, their patient steadfastness, and overflowing joy. But in the midst of his commendation, Paul voices a word of caution. Abounding in the work of the Lord is only one step removed from abandoning the work of the Lord Through complacency." That's a pretty good sentence. Abounding in the work of the Lord is only one step removed from abandoning the work of the Lord through complacency. Thus Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to excel in their faith, to increase in their love for one another, and to give thanks always for all things. In short, Paul encourages them to stay on target as they labor for the Lord. The danger of success in any measure of life, financial, marital, parenting, spiritual, is complacency. Because once we get to that place where we're pretty content, and pretty happy and feel pretty good about it, that's a dangerous place to be. That's what he's saying, uh, what Boa and Wilkinson are saying. And I think it's a, a valid observation. Let me give you a broad couple of observations and then we're gonna look at some topics and then I'm gonna give you a set of takeaways because this book is so practical and so common sense. Uh, first of all, this is a parental note. Uh, this is a parent talking to children. There's a lot of language in here about a loving, father, a loving parental figure. So we see his affection, his encouragement, his nurturing. Um, Cindy and I have been uh, privy to see a number of our young couples have babies and try to go over there when it's, you know, coast is clear with COVID and whatnot and see these little babies. And there's something about watching a, a first-time mom and dad handle that baby. And it's just real interesting because uh, you don't know what you don't know, but they know a lot. That mom has had that little person in utero for nine months. And there's this connection there. There's this immediate love affair with this person who comes out of your body and you go, wow. And you do everything right as a parent, right? Then they become teenagers and you find out what you didn't do, but that's another story. Enjoy the infancy while you have them enjoy that little uh, time that's a little blip on the map. But the problem with parenting is like anything, our goal is nurturing and encouragement and training. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's a joy. Sometimes we're ready to do it. Sometimes we want nothing to do with it. In this case, Paul is the affectionate parent who's encouraging, but he's also going to correct them. Again, his main theme is sanctification, which is this growth as the believer. Let's look at some of these main topics. First, He's thankful for their love and their faithfulness. He wants to express that. He reminds them of his integrity, which is an interesting part of Paul's, um, let's call it his apologetic, because a lot of times he's on his heels being criticized or attacked, and so he wants them to know who he really is, whether he was faithful or unfaithful, whether he was a tent maker, whatever. He wants them to know who he is as an apostle. Thirdly, he's going to encourage as well as confront some pretty unsavory immorality. And it's very interesting in this one verse, he's going to confront their immorality and their indolence. You wouldn't put those two in a sentence normally, normally thinking. You're immoral, but you're lazy. And the more I thought about it in the last week, 10 days, there is a connection. Because if you're not busy and productive and constructive, uh, you can get into all sorts of trouble. And this may be part of the tension, but it's interesting. Paul is very pointed when he says, if you don't work, you don't eat, basically. That's his message, and that's a good message for all of us, whether we're raising children or we're in between jobs or whatever. Fourth, he clarifies this asleep in Jesus language. Um, I love Paul's language when it comes to facing death. He gives us six different metaphors, absent, present, uh, to be imperishable, perishable, imperishable, uh, so forth and so on. And this one is about being asleep. And when you see a person in a casket, uh, it's just a suit of clothes. It's just a suit of clothes. It looks like they're asleep. It's just a suit of clothes. And Paul tells the believers, they're wondering what happens to these people? And he speaks about when you're asleep and the Lord, this is what it means. And then finally, in the last part of the Book, the little letter, it's a very short letter. He talks about encouraging your leaders and your general conduct. Well, let's look at a list of takeaways I've put together. These aren't exhaustive. You might have different insights. I encourage you to find your own, but these are the ones I gleaned reading it again and again and again. Number one, believers are examples. Let's read chapter one, verses six and seven. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, The gospel came to them, they embraced it in in chapter one, verse three, there was a steadfast hope in the Lord. When they trusted Christ, there was a steadfast hope in the Lord. Do you remember when you came to Christ, what changed about you mentally? What changed in your thought process? The thing that overwhelmed me was I was forgiven. And I can go back to that place very quickly, emotionally and in my mind's eye when I trusted Christ. And I was a teenager, but I was a wicked, licentious young boy. And when I trusted Christ and I knew what that meant, I felt forgiveness for the first time in my life. It was an unusual feeling. Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about their hope in the Lord Uh, That's a little better theology, perhaps, but that's what he reminds them. Um, We will always debate this as long as we're on the planet as Christians. How much do you have to change to be a Christian? Which is why I began with this observation. Salvation is a point in time. Sanctification is a process. Point in time versus process. So when we think of growing in Christ, maturing in Christ, what that means, uh, there's a lot of discussion. Books have been you know, written from both sides of the country, arguing with each other about what is really salvation? What is it, what isn't it? And I think this will go on for time immemorial because we like to be in control. We like to have the right answers. And well, we should when it comes to the subject of salvation. But how much of our sanctification proves our salvation? Answer? None. Now, I want to change, I want to grow, but that doesn't prove I'm saved. Truth be told, none of us knows the other one is saved. Now we look for indications, we look for change. Uh, If we were very selfish and you're a little less selfish, if you were egotistical and you're not, if you were always talking and you start to learn to restrain a little bit, if you were a person that held a grudge and you find it loosening its grip on you, those are changes, right? But do we measure our Christianity because of those changes? This is a complicated subject. And what Paul's doing in Thessalonians is he says, almost on the backstroke, you were an example to those around you and to us. We saw something different in you. Now we want change, we want growth, we want people to grow in Christ. And children are so delightful to work with because when they grab a a concept of the Bible the way they articulate it is powerful and precious. It's, it can be clever, it can be funny, but it's often right to the point. They get it a lot of times and we make it very complicated. And this is one of the challenges of looking at our faith. If we embrace Christ by faith, do we live as a thank you back to him? That is to me the fulcrum, the way of looking at this. A uh, number of times Paul uses the term example. Um, he talks about, it's the word tupos in Greek where we get type from. Most of us in this room remember real typewriters with a return and a platen and a roller and you put the paper in and you, you physically had to push the keys before electric typewriters came along. And that typeface was so called because when it struck the ribbon and the piece of paper was there against the pressure of the platen, it left a mark. The mark was the type. In other words, a type is what struck. We think of typesetting, letters and so forth today, but what the word, the history of the word was, a mark, we might say a mark left behind. Paul says, you're an example. So in Philippians 3.17, he says, join in following my example. In 1 Corinthians 5.16, he says, I exhort you be an imitator of me, a little different word, but the same ideology. You're supposed to do what I do. Now, when I read these phrases, especially when Paul says, imitate me, it catches me. How many of us would stand up here and say, this is the way you live the Christian life? That's kind of chilling. When we were in uh, Northern Virginia, Washington DC area, we had a very large elder body. We had up to 50 elders. They had to be unanimous in their decision-making. It was so fun and easy. Um, uh, But there were safeguards built in, and that was that community and the culture, and it worked very well there. Um, And every year we had a big, long process to bring on new elders, and that was enormous. And there was a lot of homework done to bring on elders. And uh, then each council would vet these people. And with that large of a church, you don't know these people, and you're about to turn them loose as the shepherd of the flock, And of course, everyone has a constituency. There's always people that think that this person is a great leader. But you have to learn a little more than just what the friends say. And they had a pretty robust process. It was a good process. I've never seen it done better. At the end of this thing, we brought all these names to the table. And if memory serves, it was about 18-month process start to finish when we started vetting these names. And then we'd have this final vote. And I had this little speech I gave every year. And I would say, we've done a vetting, you've, you've recommended these people. Uh, we've looked at their family life, their marriages. They don't have to be perfect, but um, how do they manage the household? By the way, if you're managing a household, uh, if nothing's going wrong and there's no problems, you're not really managing. When there's a problem, how does that family manage? That's really what the word means. So how do you handle a teenager in rebellion? How do you handle a child that, you know, a girl that gets pregnant at an early age in a home? Does that disqualify him? No. How does he, how does the wife, how do they manage that process? So we're looking at all these things. And so we would talk about this at great length, and I would say, here, at the end of the day, before we approve these men, you are going to stamp the word example on their forehead and put them in the flock. And you're going to say, that's how you live the Christian life. That ought to make you afraid, afraid, That ought to give you chills. Because you're vetting a person to say, this, are they perfect? Of course not. Paul wasn't perfect, he was an apostle. But he does say, be an imitator of me. Follow my example. And then he turns it and he says to the Thessalonians, you're an example, your faith is an example, which tells me we all should be examples. And this is pretty easy. I mean, we're obsessed with all these Enneagrams and Myers Briggs and DISC and Performax and Strong's Inventory Analysis, MMPI and Fire and all we could go talking about assessment tools. One day we'll know who we are. God help us. Uh, but, but we like to look in, we like to go deep. My question always is we, we've got to maybe we get angry. Maybe we talk too much. I'll confess. Maybe we can overpower people with our personality. I confess. When you come to Christ, Are you at least aware of it? When you come to Christ, are you asking for help? When you come to Christ, do you have a spouse? And I said, Cindy, Cindy, am I talking too much? Well, yeah, thanks for the encouragement. (laughs) But you need that body of Christ around you so that you're, you can't just change personality, but a spirit-controlled person is a growing person. A person who doesn't get quite as angry. Maybe you're angry underneath, but you're controlling it. I need the Holy Spirit's help to control. You see, we ought to be examples to other Christians. That's the short answer. You and I should be examples to other believers. When other believers are you know, interesting or challenging or wrong, are you an example? Secondly, and this one is going to sting a little bit, but be bold in sharing the gospel. Be bold in sharing the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much opposition. After we'd already suffered and been mistreated, we had the boldness to speak the gospel. Um, For most believers, the idea of sharing your faith is absolutely terrifying. Um, I I hate guilt and shame. I refuse to use guilt and shame. If the Bible makes you feel guilty when you read it, fine. I don't wanna pour gas on false guilt in particular. There is healthy guilt. When you and I feel shame and guilt, Alan Bloom said 40 years ago, psychologists were the sworn enemies of guilt. That may be a bit of an overstatement, but there's a lot of truth in that theory. Don't feel shame. You were shamed as a child. Of course we were shamed as a child. Next subject. You can use these things in the wrong way. That's what we need to acknowledge. So please don't hear me shaming you or making you feel guilty. I conclude the reason we don't talk about the gospel is twofold. We're afraid of people's reactions and we don't know how. It's that simple. I'm afraid of what they might say and how they might react. And I'm really not sure how to turn this conversation to spiritual things. The first part of the solving this is really easy. Learn how. You need a method. I use the bad news, good news. Two points for the bad news, two points for the good news. You can use the Roman road. Use whatever you want, use a pamphlet. I don't care what you use. Uh, The the, the challenge to me and especially in our middle Tennessee economy is everybody's a Christian. We're all Christians. When, when when, When you do go out to eat, if you still do, Uh, And you pray, the waiter or waitress waits until you finish praying. And they might say amen after they put the food down. It's a different culture than Oregon. It's a different culture than a lot of cities in the U.S. So we can get away with all being Christians. Um, I think I told you all, I had a friend that passed away very suddenly a few weeks ago. And I I don't know where he was spiritually. He knew the Bible really well. He was a retired physician. I love the heck out of spending time with the guy. We were becoming really good friends. He was going through a horrible divorce, and I still hung out with him and pursued him. And we would talk, the the Thursday, he died Sunday night. The Thursday I saw him, we spent two and a half hours talking about the Bible and the Lord and creation and evolution. He was all over the map. And I'm looking for that, how do I get land this plane? And what do you believe? You see, I have to know the how, and not be afraid of their potential response. My experience has been very few have ever gotten angry at me. Very few have ever been mad. And a lot of that is the method we learn on how to talk about it. Paul says he did it with boldness after being suffered and mistreated. Let's put it in, in uh, New Living Translation. I was beaten up. And I still was bold about sharing the gospel. If most of us got a bloody nose from sharing the gospel, I doubt we'd get back on the horse the next day and share the gospel. We'd probably go like Jonah and hide under a shade tree. Um, unfortunately, there was a plaque years ago. It was not only misquoted, but it was mischaracterization. It says, preach the gospel all the time. Use words if necessary. That's a horrible misquotation declaration of the gospel has to be clear. We have to explain it. Um, the manner in which we say it is, I think, where we can learn. I found the phrase, um, I'd love to get your opinion on something, to be completely disarming. We've become friends. We've been hanging out. I've learned about your family, your job, your career, some of the things that we have in common. Uh, I'd just like to get your opinion. Where, where are you in this whole faith religious story? I don't think that's ever been an angry conversation, whether we were captive on a plane sitting across from another person. Why do we always tell evangelism stories on planes? How about what it is, you know? Lord, I got it. Rob Morgan, our dear friend was here. He talked about being on a plane. He said, I, just, I knew i needed to talk to this kid about the gospel. I didn't want to. Finally, he said, okay. And he goes, hi, I'm a Baptist pastor. Do you have any questions? <laughs> that's gotta be the most weird way to ever transition. But it worked and he shared Christ with the guy and he trusted Christ. God can use any of us. Um, but the manner in which we do this, we're not beaten. We may need to be bold. But a real specific encouragement for you why don't you pray that God will give you the boldness to ask some questions? I suspect every one of us in this room has a number of non Christian friends, or we have friends we're not sure where they stand. And the greatest favor you could ever do to another human being is to ask them, tell me about your relationship with God. How did you grow up? What was your church background like? And then move that to the text. Let the text do the work. That's the weirdest thing about this transaction. In business, we're closing a sale. We're selling a service. We're representing ourselves. In healthcare, we're trying to fix a patient or get them back you know, on their feet. In education, we're trying to transfer information to help them learn something. In the, in the gospel, we're just presenting God's word and letting his spirit do the work. That's a, that's a crazy maker in the way our Western mind works. Our job is to share the story and to ask them good questions. How do you know? How, what, what, what do you believe? Where did you get that idea? You know, I found these verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Romans six twenty three, Romans three twenty three, Romans 5, 8. It doesn't take that long to look at it, and there's all kinds of techniques. But I think for most of us who grew up in Middle Tennessee and the south and surrounding areas, you know this. And you're already the nicest people in the world. Bless your heart. Why don't you pray that God will give you boldness. Spend some time learning how. And just see who might come across your radar in the next week. You might be shocked. Thirdly, please God, not man. Please God, not man. Chapter 2, verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. I've written this phrase all over my Bible and journals Be free from the fear of men and full of the fear of God. How do we please God, not man? Um, If we're entrusted with this, then we please God by sharing it. That's the simple way of explaining it. If we're entrusted with it, we please God by sharing it. In the first century, the idea of stewardship was well known. Stewards of a vineyard, stewards of a person's wealth, stewards of a, we might think of a ranch, a working ranch. They worked for the master. The master gave them an allocation to oversee. And you know, they knew everything about that allocation. I remember many years ago in Israel, one of the first times I talked to a local about the vineyards in Israel, um, a, a vineyard worker is called a steward. And a steward knows everything about that vineyard. A steward knows everything about wine. I thought, what an interesting parallel. If we're stewards of the gospel, we, need to, we talk about stewarding things well, using it for God. We're always steward, never owner is another phrase many of us have grown up with. But the idea of God trusted you and me with the vineyard. He trusted you and me with the money in the bank. He trusted you and me with the gospel. And so are we doing this to please God who's the one that gave it to us? Fourth, the Christian life is not easy. The Christian life is not easy, and this is another cheery Michael Easley point. Longer passage, let me read it, we'll come back to it. Notice the time, the the, the vocabulary of of discomfort. Verse 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And when it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, I could endure it no longer. I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that we always think kindly of us, Kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distresses and afflictions, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if we if you stand firm in the Lord. Disturbed afflictions, destined, suffer affliction, endure it no longer, and all our distress and afflictions. The backdrop of this little paragraph is is not easy. I often say we're fallen creatures in a fallen context. It's a broken world. Where do we ever get the idea life is going to work out a certain way? Uh, you, you, you listen to a preacher long enough, you'll know what he or she is going through. How long have I said for the last three years, uh, life, when do we get the idea life is going to work out a certain way? That applies to junior high, high school, college, courtship, engagements, marriage. Number of children, how well the children work out, who they marry, grandchildren. Where did you ever get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? Before we had grandkids, Cindy, she wasn't like pining for grandchildren, but she would see other couples our age with three or four or five grandkids. And she was like, oh, that's so wonderful. Oh, that's so wonderful. And it is wonderful. And she is an insufferable grandma. She's insufferable about it. Um, but you know, it took us maybe a little longer than other people. And we look at our friends who are a little younger than us, and their kids aren't even married. And so you're always looking around over your shoulder wondering, what. no, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be health issues. There'll be complicated pregnancies. There'll be a child with, we hate to call them, but disabilities or challenges or needs. There might be, a real difficult situation if you adopt children. There's all sorts of things in the mix. And we plan it, and we pray, and we we attribute all our decisions. God led us this way. When we're blessed, we always give God the credit. God led us this way, and it worked out. Then when it doesn't, we're silent. And that's really where faith begins, in my opinion. It begins when it's not working out. The Christian life isn't easy. But notice Paul drew comfort by their faith. Um, You hear me talk about Johnny Erickson Tata quite often and uh, we we trade emails when when it comes to pain management. And I, I, I don't understand why God would give that woman chronic pain with all she has. I don't understand it. She's quadriplegia for 53 years now, cancer twice, now chronic pain that they can't treat. Why Lord? This is too much for one human being. I don't have any answers for it. But you know, her faith blows my mind. And you know what? She's an example to me when I get into a pity party. Now, it doesn't make my pain any less. And I often hear people say, well, you know, I pulled my back out and I thought of you all weekend. I go, stop. Number one, there's no competition or comparison. Your pain's your pain. It's not how I manage it. It's how do you manage it? And there is all kinds of things we try and remedies and, you know, elixirs and surgeries and all these kind of things we have at our, at our disposal, which are good to investigate. But boy, if you don't have faith in Christ in the process, it's just a fool's errand. We're fallen creatures in a fallen world. It's, life is not meant to be easy. But who are the men and women that stand faithful in the midst of the pressure? I talked this week to a dear friend that just turned 91 this past week. And she misses her husband of 67 years of marriage desperately. And she says, well, the Lord just keeps taking care of me every day. And I can hear the parts of her voice they are a little hollow and a little lonely. And we talk, and she's, she's uh, 100% German, so the conversations aren't very long. <laughs> They're not flowery. She's sort of cut and dried woman but she's like a mom to me. I love her, and I want her to know that. And I look at her and go, I don't know how you do this. I don't want to be 91, I'm sorry. I want to be in heaven long before then, right? Some of you want to be 91, good for you. Number five, please God, this is our sanctification. How? By being sanctified. Finally then, chapter four, verse one. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction how you ought to walk to please God. There it is. How you ought to walk to please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Let am going to read that again. Your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the manner in that matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for this purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. It's a long passage. It's so full of so many important things. But the tension of sanctification is tied very neatly to the idea of immorality pulls at us. Sanctification draws us to God. It's the old adage, you can't just stop sinning. You have to turn from sinning to do something else with your energy. If a young man or woman is addicted to pornography, you can't just stop looking at pornography. You have to turn that energy into something else. You have to turn away from sin and do good is what scripture enjoins us to do. And it's a process, it's painful, it's hard. We all have, the the King's English used to call them besetting sins. Uh, And I tell you often, be a student of your sin. When do you find yourself succumbing to temptation? Look at what happened. You and your wife have an argument. You and your husband have an argument. One of your kids give you a lot of grief. One of your teenagers you know, really took you to task or something, and you're mad, and you're angry, and there's, there's certain tipping points when we're more vulnerable to fall into temptation. And I think it's important to study that and say, okay, Lord, how do I keep from getting in that trap? We've talked about the H A L T addicts use this a lot, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Don't ever go out in the world if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired because you're more apt to use. Um, I told that to a woman years ago who was going through some issues. She said, well, if that's the case, I'd never leave the house. There's always ways around things. But it's just an indication to say, okay, how do I please God and not just my flesh? He didn't call me to impurity. He called me to sanctification. So I've got to stop doing sin, not just by the will of the flesh. You cannot make your flesh better. You cannot make your flesh better. You and I can submit to the power and the person of Holy Spirit, and we ask Him to help. We ask for His control. We ask for Ephesians five eighteen that we're controlled by the Spirit of God. There's a lot in this text, but we walk to please God. We excel, excel still more. Uh, how many of you are weary? Three of us admit it. Sometimes I'll wake up and go, Oh, another day. I'm weary. Paul says, Excel still more. God's will is a funny subject. I don't know about today because I'm not culturally with it, but in college, that was the obsession what is God's will? Anybody remember that? God's will for your life. And we read books by Gary Friesen and we argued about what God's will was. And was there a dot? And do you believe there's one person on the planet? You only married this one person and no one else. And all this, you know, theoretical knowledge is dangerous when you're in college. And uh, we, we talked, argued long and long about the will of God. The will of God is for your sanctification. The will of God is for you and I to turn away from sin and follow Christ. The will of God is, am I becoming more like this person? Sanctification. Am I becoming more like my Savior and less like my sinful self? It's a universal problem. Said another way, you and I have to submit to God's call for sanctification, not our heart for sensuality. You and I have to submit to God's will, to God's heart for sanctification, not to our heart for sensuality. Our bellies are compelling things, and a full belly is a wonderful metaphor. It's satisfying. It satiates the hunger, the angry, the anxiety, the loneliness. It's a perfect metaphor. No, I need to turn to Christ, and that's that's kind of a head-scratcher. Let's be candid. Finally, grieve with hope. Grieve with hope, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. There's the phrase, fallen asleep in Jesus twice. We don't want you to be worried about those who've died and where they are. Perhaps, uh, again, there's six very poignant metaphors that Paul uses to talk about death for the believer. And I know we don't like to talk about death in our culture, and I don't have a death wish, but I wish you had a Christian view of death. And that view is we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve differently. You don't grieve being angry at the world. You don't grieve like the world and that's a game changer for the believer. It, it's, again, it, I, I, I don't know how to encourage you. It's not morbid to think about your mortality. Because this earth is not your home. I really think most of us, when we cross the threshold from this life to the next, are going to hear that voice, what was I so worried about anything for? Why did I waste so much energy on anything in life? I took one step and it was, Ta-da! The things of the earth will grow strangely dim, the songwriter penned. I don't have a death wish, but I don't want you to fear death. The only way you can not fear death is that you know Christ. You need to know that he lived, that he died, that he was buried. He came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are given a free gift called eternal life. You're forgiven of sin. You're brought from one world into the family of God. And that begins an eternal relationship that starts here on this planet and will live a lot longer once we cross that threshold. We're examples. Be bold in sharing the gospel. Please God, not men. Know that the Christian life is not so easy. But our objective is sanctification. And that's how you and I please God.
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.